This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to PM. I'm Linda Mottram. Tonight, Australia's international spy chief suggests Chinese officials are increasingly unhappy and feeding information to Australian agencies. Also, a medical expert fact-checks the Prime Minister after he offers support to his candidate who spoke of mutilated transgender children. There's no cases of genital surgery occurring in people under 18 in Australia for reasons of being transgender. I mean, people really need to take care of the facts when they're speaking about a young, vulnerable population like this. And another case of the NDIS falling short of expectations after knocking back specialist accommodation for a man with dementia and a brain injury. It offered alcohol services instead. It's not going to repair him. It's not going to cure his ABI, is it? Once again, it's just a fob off. It's just a handball to other services so they don't have to deal with it. Welcome to the program. Australia's top overseas spy chief has suggested that a growing number of disaffected Chinese officials are feeding information to Australian intelligence agents because they're unhappy with the Chinese government's trajectory under Xi Jinping. The Director General of ASIS, Paul Simon, made the surprisingly candid observation during a speech at the Lowy Institute marking the agency's 70th anniversary. For more, our foreign affairs reporter Stephen Jedgetts joins us. Stephen, and it seems like Mr Simon was quite intent on making this point about the intelligence opportunities offered by China's authoritarian turn. Yes, that's right, Linda. Mr Simon not only hinted at this during the speech, but also expanded on it in the Q&A session afterwards. He said in the speech, in what was a pretty clear reference to Xi Jinping, that when leaders abolish fixed political terms, for example, they become responsible and accountable for everything, including the disillusionment that emerges from within. And this provides us with an edge. And then later on, he took the opportunity to essentially say that an increasing number of Chinese officials were unhappy with the trajectory of China under Xi Jinping, unhappy with the fact it's taken an authoritarian turn, and as a result they were more willing to establish relationships and presumably feed information to Australian intelligence operatives. Let's take a listen to Mr Simon speaking at the Lowy Institute earlier today. But what we're seeing is more and more signs of Uh, officials, individuals uh, interested in a relationship. That's not coercion. That is very real concern about their culture, the lack of diversity in their culture uh, and the direction uh, that they're heading in. But Stephen, you'd have to bring some scepticism to a spy chief's claims around these sorts of things. I mean, of course they want to be seen to be able to leverage countries that we have some tensions with. Yeah, that's right. And there's no doubt that Mr. Simon, along with all intelligence chiefs, are keen to burnish their credentials. It's also, of course, very, very difficult. In fact, basically impossible to really test what Mr. Simon has put to us because we have no access to the intelligence, of course, that he does. Uh, And it's also worth noting, of course, that uh, in circumstances like this, uh, that there may also be an attempt here from Mr. Simon to potentially send a very deliberate message to China 
or to perhaps provoke a certain reaction within the Chinese system. So it's difficult to be sure exactly what games are being played here, but the fact that the allegation or that the observation has been made so candidly and put out into the public is definitely interesting. So Stephen, did he field any questions about the security pact struck by China and the Solomon Islands? He did, but it wasn't a very pointed one, and Mr Simon trod much more carefully on the delicate subject of the China-Solomon Islands security pact. After all, Mr Simon was one of two officials who actually went to Honiara last month in a last-minute and ultimately unsuccessful attempt to try and convince the Prime Minister there, Manasseh Sogavare, not to press ahead with the pact, a pact which, of course, Australian officials fear could lead to a Chinese military presence in the country down the track. Now, Mr. Simon said that Australia would do, quote, everything it can to share information and intelligence with Solomon Islands to help them understand that what is going on right now is, quote, a big deal. Let's take a listen again to to Mr. Simon speaking at Lowy. It's a big deal for Australia. It's a big deal for the region. And I think for the mothers uh, and many of the citizens of Solomon Islands, it's a very big deal, too. So we're, we're very seized by this and, uh, and we'll keep working very hard to make sure um, that we do the best thing that we can um, for the people of the Solomon Islands. Now, Linda, it's worth remembering, of course, that the government has hinted repeatedly without making any allegations uh, that China employed some underhand tactics, potentially even bribery, to get its way in Solomon Islands and to build up its influence. Mr. Simon made no allegation along those lines, but he did talk more broadly about the risk of, as he put it, democratic systems being manipulated in our near region, saying political leaders, which again he did not name, can be, quote, subverted, directed and controlled or can take advantage of largesse being showered upon them, saying it was the agency's job to give Australian politicians information about exactly what was going on in the region. So a pretty bleak picture painted overall by Mr Simon, but also some interesting observations about the opportunities that are offered up by, in particular, China's authoritarian drift. Thanks very much, Stephen. Our foreign affairs reporter, Stephen Jedgett's there. Well, the Prime Minister has drawn the ire of the country's top barristers by continuing his attack on the legitimacy of the New South Wales Integrity Commission. Scott Morrison has declared he doesn't care that the legal fraternity have criticised his model for a federal integrity commission, which would have no public hearings and no power to start its own investigations. Transgender rights have also re-emerged on the campaign trail, but medical experts in the area say the Prime Minister has his facts wrong. Isabel Rowe reports. The New South Wales Integrity Commission has ended the careers of Labor and Liberal ministers and premiers alike, and its work has gained a vocal critic in Prime Minister Scott Morrison. He's called it a kangaroo court and a life destroyer and says that's why he hasn't implemented something similar at the federal level. I I stand by everything I've said on this matter. I don't believe the New South Wales ICAC is the model that we should be following at a federal level. His Liberal colleague, the New South Wales Premier, last week disagreed with the Prime Minister's criticism of the state's anti-corruption watchdog. But standing beside Scott Morrison today, Dominic Perrottet was more diplomatic. I believe the Prime Minister and I are completely on the same page in relation to driving integrity in public office. 
whether that's politicians or the public service. And, and, and I, accept, I accept that we may disagree in relation to the operation of the New South Wales model. The Prime Minister has also hit back at criticism from the legal profession. And I don't care if barristers and lawyers and others up there in Macquarie Street, I don't mean in the Parliament, I mean sitting around in the barristers' chambers disagree with me. Those comments have offended the nation's barristers, according to the head of the Australian Bar Association, Matt Collins QC. Well, the concern was that it was a condemnation of barristers as a profession. There, there is plenty of room for debate about the proper design and powers and mode of operation of anti-corruption bodies, but it's not right to characterise the New South Wales ICAC as a kangaroo court. Another campaign issue has reappeared after the Liberal candidate for Warringah, Catherine Deves, appeared to take back an apology for suggesting some transgender children are surgically sterilised and mutilated. She told Sky News that is accurate terminology and it's contained in the New South Wales Crimes Act. Dr Fiona Bishop is a GP and head of the Australian Professional Association for Trans Health. She explains that the word mutilation appears in the Crimes Act for other reasons. It's actually referring to um, female genital mutilation, which is something uh, that's completely different to what happens with trans people who are having surgery. Scott Morrison was asked today whether he still stood by his candidate in Warringah, which resulted in a tense exchange with reporters. This is a very significant change to a young person's life, and it is often irreversible. I don't but there are no adolescents that can no, have no, this I'm surgery. You, have, you are saying no, people not are going into that at all, Claire. You're implying that. I'm not implying that. I'm simply saying... Would you stand by the language? Saying, and if you no, don't, I, I would, how do you stand I by her apology? I wouldn't use that language. Children under the age of 18 can't undergo gender reassignment surgery in Australia, picking up on Claire's comment in this country. So how are your comments relevant? But you, you, you will also understand that this process can begin in adolescence. Dr Fiona Bishop prefers the term gender-affirming surgery and says it's hard to access, expensive and not performed on teenagers. There's no cases of genital surgery occurring in um, people under 18 in Australia for uh, reasons of being transgender. Um, There may be some rare cases of older trans teens getting chest surgery, which we call top surgery, to uh, remove the female chest. These are pretty rare cases and it's not something that's ever rushed into. It's a decision that's made within a treating team with mental health professional input. People really need to take care of the facts when they're speaking about a young vulnerable population like this. From Labor's campaign, Anthony Albanese has called for a hike to the minimum wage to keep up with inflation. The Australian Council of Trade Unions has asked the Fair Work Commission to increase wages by 5.5%, which would see the hourly rate rise to $21.45. Mr Albanese says Labor would push for an increase of at least 5.1%, the current inflation rate. We think no one should go backwards. People should be at least keeping up at least keeping up with the cost of living. Labor's spokesman Jason Clare clarified that whatever the Fair Work Commission says about wages, Labor would support. What's controversial about wages keeping up with the cost of living? The alternative to that is that Australians on low incomes are poorer, that they go backwards.
The uh, Labor frontbencher Jason Clare, Isabel Rowe, with that report. Well, one of the fears about wage rises while inflation is growing is that it just adds fuel to the fire. But many households know all too well that without a wage rise, they'll be going backwards, as Labor keeps telling us, as prices keep rising. Now, in its submission to the Fair Work Commission, as Isabel reported, the ACTU has an opening gambit seeking a 5.5% increase to the minimum wage. Currently, it's just over $20 an hour. It's received by about 2.2 million Australians. But in the current situation, would a rise of 5.5% be responsible? Richard Holden is Professor of Economics at the University of New South Wales. No, I don't think it's responsible, and I think it will fuel inflation. Now, it's not the ACTU's job to necessarily be responsible. They're acting on behalf of a certain constituency, so at some level one can't blame them for doing that. But, um, you know, I think that would fuel inflation. It's important to recognise that not very many people actually get paid the minimum wage, but it does have flow-on effects throughout the rest of the industrial relations system, particularly an increase of that magnitude. So, you know, I'd be surprised if that's the eventual outcome, but I guess they're playing a classic game of don't ask for, don't get. (laughs) Well, in that case, um, Anthony Albanese's sort of doing the same, isn't he? He said today he hasn't backed that number, but he has said he doesn't want to see people go backwards. So he's essentially backing a 5.1% wage rise because that's the inflation rate. That's not a great position either? Uh, I don't think that's a great position either. I I obviously can't speculate and I'm not privy to Mr Albanese's motives. It's probably not great to be, you know, the leader of the Australian Labor Party running for Prime Minister and, uh, you know, step away from the union movement in the last two weeks of the campaign. So there are natural reasons why he would support that. You know, he clearly wants wages to be growing faster. That's, you know, a reasonable thing to want, this probably just isn't the way to go about it. So what would a reasonable wage rise be under the current conditions, um, given that, you know, some people are doing it tough under an inflationary situation, uh, but there are those constraints? Look, that's the kind of determination that we we have a Fair Work Commission for. They take submissions, they, they have a number of members, they have a broad perspective on it. But, you know, I would have thought if you had something like 25 to 3% and the Reserve Bank does what they will do and what they've suggested that they will do, which is to get inflation under control, sure, it's going to take some period of time. But that, um, you know, I would have thought something in the sort of 2.5% to 3% range would be in the ballpark. And what's the best way to not get back into this situation with wages that have been so stagnant for, for quite a while in Australia. You know, how do you create an economy that can get, deliver wage growth for people? There's one sort of important truth, if you like, which is in the long run, the way you, you uh, increase real wages is through productivity growth. So the Nobel Prize winning economist and New York Times columnist Paul Krugman has a quote from nearly 30 years ago, which has pretty well stood the test of time. And I might get the exact wording wrong, but it's along the lines of productivity isn't everything, but in the long run, it's almost everything. (laughs) And he goes on to say that's basically the only way in the long run you can um, increase living standards for everyone. So, you know, you can take certain groups, people on the minimum wage, aged care workers, nurses, school teachers, you can take particular groups and give them a particular wage rise. But if you want to raise living standards overall, real wages overall, for everyone in the economy, it's really only one avenue, and that's productivity growth. And what is productivity growth? Because I think for a lot of people whose profession is not economics, uh, (laughs) the view is sort of, well, that sounds a bit like robots and technology pushing me out of my job. Sure. Um, So what it is, it's the amount of output per worker 
per hour. What has that been growing at? Well, between 1995 and 2010, that grew at about 2.2% a year. And since then, it's grown at only about 1.5% a year. So what are the, in the last 30 years or so, what are the factors that have really helped drive up productivity growth? Well, you know, the, the computer and IT revolution really helped. Why is that? Well, it, it, it drove some people out of their jobs, but it made a whole lot of people, other people, a lot more productive at their job. Think about point of sale equipment in retail stores and things like that. Think about the advent of tap card technology. There are all kinds of technological developments and, as well as the way in which we, we match labour, match people with those technological developments that leads to productivity growth and that makes everyone better off. And and presumably we are at a point technologically where there's some pretty big gains to be had given the, the energy transition, for example, that all our economies are having to go through. Exactly. There are big ticket items on the agenda and energy transition is, is chief among them. And so it's really those sorts of things. Now, the, the difficulty is you don't take a policy decision today and suddenly see at the end of this year productivity growth. It's gone up from 1.5 to 1.8% and we're doing the right thing. It's a much slower moving thing. It's a much more medium to long term thing. And that's one of the problems when you have reasonably short term political incentives is You've got to take decisions today to see the payoff five, 10 years in the future. And you know, I think one of the concerns a lot of people have is the kind of short-termism in our politics means that those decisions are not getting taken. Professor Richard Holden, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks, Linda. Economist Professor Richard Holden, and there's more at the PM webpage from that interview, including a quick take on the current global economic conditions. Well, for a year now, PM has been reporting the stories of some of those individuals who are struggling to get the support they need through the National Disability Insurance Scheme. And each story just brings forward more stories. Today, another case, a man who has spent more than 100 days in a regional hospital while he waits for support. Isabel Masali reports. In October last year, Warren Sanders was hospitalised in regional Victoria. His sister, Denise McKean, says he doesn't need medical help, but it was too unsafe for him to return home by himself, and he was rejected for specialist disability accommodation. It's not acceptable. Like, like he's too, they say he's too young to go into aged care, but aged care would be a better facility than the hospital because at least they have activi- activities and you know he's got people around him and things like that. The 60-year-old has bipolar, he has an acquired brain injury and Korsakoff syndrome or alcohol-induced dementia. It's a condition that most people don't recover from, so you can imagine Denise's confusion when the NDIS suggested he seek mainstream alcohol support services. Oh, it just sounds silly. He hasn't, he hasn't drank for 12 months and, um, and he's, the drugs are the only, is, is his medication, so I don't know why they would want to put him in a drug and alcohol facility. It's not going to repair him. It's not going to cure his ABI, is it? It's, it's, once again, it's just a fob off. It's just a handball to other services so they don't have to deal with it. That's Erin Beasley from Southwest Advocacy. She says the NDIS letter also came with an offer of supported independent living, or SIL, but she believes that's not appropriate and it's clear Warren needs a higher level of support. He can't do still. He needs constant 24-7 supervision. He can't look after himself. He can't um, cook, clean. Um, 
shower. He, he needs constant prompting. He can't function on his own. 17 documents were submitted to the NDIS to prove he should get specialist accommodation. It's the most Aaron Beasley has ever seen for an application and he was still rejected. Now they're appealing the decision. In the meantime, the advocates were able to get him out of the hospital last week and into temporary one-on-one care. They only have funding for two months and it's hoped the appeal will succeed. But if it doesn't pay off, they say he'll be back in a rural hospital that only has 20 beds. Peter Rutherford from the Rural Doctors Association says cases like this can put a strain on regional services, but more importantly, hospitals aren't designed for long-term care. We often see people end up in hospital taking up beds, but it's not the right environment for them. They're not getting the right care. Back at Erin Beasley's office, she's struggling to cope with demand for advocacy. We're funded for, I think it's 50 a year, and... I'm already up to a hundred and less than six months. Like majority of our um, advocacy support is for NDIS issues and AAT appeals. The NDIS Minister Linda Reynolds declined an interview. In a statement, an NDIS spokesperson said they provide a significant level of funding to support Warren and his transition from hospital. And his new plan is more than $300,000, including supported independent living. It went on to say specialist disability accommodation funding is for NDIS participants with extreme functional limitations or very high support needs and require purpose-built accommodation to ensure the safe and effective delivery of their disability supports. While Warren's engagement with the NDIS is fairly recent, he's not the only one who's struggled. Over the past year, PM has been highlighting stories of people on the NDIS who've had their funding cut including Claire Oliver, who has Alzheimer's and could be moved into the aged care system while in her 60s. The NDIS agency has repeatedly stressed there's no directive to reduce NDIS plans. Isabel Masali with that report. Well, the Northern Territory Chief Minister, Michael Gunner, has delivered a shock resignation announcement today, immediately after delivering the Territory's latest budget. He says he wants to put his family, including his new baby son, first. Jane Barden reports. He may be the only politician who's been sincere when stepping down from the top job in politics to spend more time with his family. The birth of our second child the week before last confirmed something for me. My head and my heart are no longer here. They are at home. Michael Gunner was teary when he revealed his resignation during his budget speech telling the Territory it's heading for a brighter future, with less debt by 2026, riding a new gas and mining boom. The challenge I set myself coming in, I knew it couldn't necessarily be achieved in my term as Chief, but how do we break those cycles of social dysfunction, trauma, dispossession, and the other big challenge we've got as a Territory is the boom-bust cycle. The former Labour political adviser copped constant flack for not having had another career before Parliament. Labour made him opposition leader in 2015 to give it a clean-skin, scandal-free alternative to offer voters in contrast to the Giles CLP government. Michael Gunner swept in on a landslide the following year, promising integrity and transparency. And we are united in our determination to make our home a better place. 
The shine quickly wore off as his office became enmired in scandals, including a dodgy $12 million grant to the Darwin Turf Club. Community anger built up over the government's inability to reduce youth crime and Michael Gunner's backflip to allow a new onshore gas industry after giving voters the impression he'd ban it. But his decisions from the beginning of the pandemic to close the NT's borders to COVID served him well, and Labour was re-elected comfortably in 2020. Coronavirus hit. We acted fast, saved lives and saved jobs. We closed the borders. His popularity has continued to ebb and flow. A new approach after the election saw Gunner dropping F-bombs on live radio. Because I'm sick of f***ing around. His determination to enforce a vaccine mandate for government workers has been particularly controversial. We've got to be very careful. We, we don't uh, essentially get complacent, take it for granted that we can deal with COVID and then suddenly have an unvaccinated, vulnerable population. That would be bad. But it doesn't appear Michael Gunner was pushed from inside his party. The NT Chamber of Commerce has criticised his management of government debt, but CEO Nicole Walsh is now giving him credit for his efforts to build the economy during difficult times. We've had some still strong outcomes for business during this time and we're coming into a really strong growth area as well. Michael Gunner had emergency surgery in January 2020 after a heart attack. Absorbing the resignation news while lunching in Darwin's Mall, many Territorians aren't surprised he's leaving. I don't think it's surprising that someone would want to spend more time with their family, especially when they have a newborn child. He seemed to handle COVID well with the lockdown and things like that. Were you surprised to hear that he'd resigned today for family reasons? No, it made sense. Um, to be honest, I'm just name as Michael Gunn. I'm not going to do stuff, but he really hasn't. You're not going to please everyone, are you? And maybe he's done what he can and he's thinking it's too much stress involved. There's nothing stopping him coming back in. He may choose to do other things and then dip his toe back in. Michael Gunner says he hasn't accepted any corporate job offers and will continue as Darwin's local member for Funny Bay. His deputy, Nicole Manison, has become acting chief minister for now. Jane Barden reporting from Darwin. Well, despite a likely landslide win for Ferdinand Marcos Jr. in the Philippines presidential election, not all Filipinos are celebrating. Some fear a return to the notorious ways of his father, Ferdinand Marcos, whose plunderous and brutal rule ended after a popular uprising nearly 40 years ago. Priyanka Srinivasan has this report. Celebrations on the streets of Manila for Bongbong Marcos with more than double the votes of his closest rival, human rights lawyer Lenny Robredo, early tallies have Mr Marcos set to take the presidency in a landslide. Supporters cheered as the news came in. And now we won 20 million plus votes for BBM! Despite his commanding lead, not everyone is happy with the results. Hundreds of demonstrators, mostly students, gathered out the front of the Electoral Commission in Manila. They're complaining of fraud and irregularities in the vote. The election body has dismissed petitions attempting to bar Mr. Marcos from the presidential race. Mr. Marcos has not yet claimed victory and refused to celebrate, but thanked his supporters. Any endeavor as large as this does not involve one person. It involves very, very many people working in very, very many different ways. 
Mr. Marcos's win marks his surprising ascent into Filipino politics. During his father's reign, the Marcos name became synonymous with plunder, extravagant living, and persecution of political opponents. Those who remember that time, like 63-year-old Elena Velasco, are worried what another Marcos presidency might look like. She was jailed for nine months in her 20s under the senior Marcos's regime for her work as a student journalist. It was a very debilitating experience. It, it was like uh, dosing cold water over a live coal. Miss Velasco now worries for her daughter, a journalist, and what another Marcos government will mean for her. It gives me a lot of anxiety for young people. I lost everything in my youth. I was raised in a period of the Philippines that is under military rule. That is the fear of so many people because tyranny can continue. Journalist and Nobel laureate Maria Reza is a prominent critic of outgoing President Rodrigo Duterte and says Mr. Marco's victory is a sign of a failing democracy. I called it democracy's death by a thousand cuts. It is how journalists, the credibility of news organizations have been torn down, cut by cut by cut. So here we are, 36 years later. Not surprising now. Mr. Marcos shied away from debate and interviews during the campaign, running on a broad platform of unity without any clear policy directives. Political scientist Andrea Chloe Wong says despite promises of discipline and progress, Marcos's government could further threaten Philippines' democracy. There will definitely be a continuation of the Philippines' democratic decline, started under Rodrigo Duterte and will... Um, continue under Marcos. Uh, we have seen this in um, Bongbo Marcos' attitude toward the press and media when he refused to attend presidential debates and restricted media access during his campaign. So this might be a foretaste of what will democracy be like in the Philippines under his administration. An official result from the presidential election is expected around the end of the month. Priyanka Srinivasan reporting, and that's PM for this Tuesday. I'm Linda Mottram. Thank you for listening. You can find all our stories on the ABC Listen app or uh, at the ABC PM webpage as well. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. Vladimir Putin's Victory Day speech failed to deliver what some experts expected, the announcement of the mass mobilisation of millions of Russians to fight in the war in Ukraine. Today, former US State Department official and Russia policy expert Max Bergman on Putin's highly anticipated speech and how the war will end. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.